0: We respectfully acknowledge the University of Arizona is on the land and territories of indigenous peoples. Today, Arizona is home to 22 federally recognized tribes, with Tucson being home to the Autumn and Yaqui. Committed to diversity and inclusion, the university strives to build sustainable relationships with sovereign native nations and indigenous communities through education offerings, partnerships, and community service. Don't be
1: afraid of it, understand it, and understand when you're being fed AI.
0: Well, hello, and thank you for joining us for episode 64. Today we speak with Dr. Arda Bakshande. Dr. Bakshande is the Chief Medical Informatics Officer at Alignment Healthcare, a population health management company that partners with health systems and provider groups across the country to improve the health of seniors. Dr. Bakshande is a friend to the profession He is married to a PA. He has many PAs in his family. He has been a PA educator at the University of Southern California's PA school and uh, is a preceptor for many schools as well in the past. And he has a particular expertise in the use of artificial intelligence in healthcare. So we certainly look forward to hearing from Dr. Bakshande today. Thank you so much for joining us. I appreciate it. As you know, I mean, this topic... I was just looking through the the text uh, from Anthony Chang. and I mean, this is a huge topic to talk about in 45 minutes. So we won't yeah. be able to scratch the surface very much, but I thought we could just kind of you know talk a little bit about how you got into medicine, how you got into AI, its use cases that you've experienced personally and kind of what you see as the the argument for PA education to be preparing. Students and faculty to be ready to use AI as a tool down the road, so that we can kind of put our pitch in. Yeah, um, because sure. the, the audience is mostly applicants and educators. There's there's some cl- clinical types as well, but I think that would be really helpful. You know, people ask me for you know kind of
1: guidance on should they go to medical school, should they go to PA school, you know, do it. They ask me why do you you know why why would you become a doctor, and I always say it kind of chose me in a way. Um, and I think we you and I have talked about this in the past is I've just had experiences in my life where you know, I kind of thought to myself, you know, I think for, for whatever reason, things happen around me and I maybe call it my situational awareness. They probably happen around everybody, mm-hmm. but I, um, I'm like, okay, well, that person needs help and no one's helping them. It should probably be me because... It feels good when I do that, so let me do that. And it's more than just you know wanting to help people. It's it's a patients typically are in a vulnerable right situation. But things I'm talking about are this happened actually with one of your graduating classes. We a lot of the girls were over. You know my. Catherine my wife is is a PA and she uh you know they were over just after graduation and my neighbor fell off the roof and I I heard it and I remember looking up and all the the girls looked at me and the, you know they're like what was that and I'm like yeah you heard it too I don't know and we heard a moan and I just jumped over our 8 foot tall brick wall And he was down, he had a pelvic fracture, he had a colleagues fracture, and they're all, you know, they're all peeking over. I'm like, I need two of you to come over here and help me stabilize him. Someone else call 911. This is what we're going to do and kind of walk him, you know, walk through it. And he ended up doing okay, but is, you know, it's kind of situations like that. It's odd. It happens to me a lot. Yeah. You know, and um, so I think that was really why I decided medicine was, you know, my, my route. Plus, I I enjoy being an educator. I feel like medicine is really something that you have to continue to learn, but it's something that you have to teach. And it's it's been a you know a blessing that I think I have. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I've had the intelligence to be able to continue through it. Yeah. Um And you know uh, through clinical practice, through you know through going through things like not fellowship, but residency, and then going into kind of the chronic disease management programs I went into, which felt like a fellowship and meeting a, a fellow clinician at a, a AI conference you know, in 2015, that was kind of where my eyes opened up that we were coming out of this AI winter, if you will, of, you know, really for the last 20, 30 years, it was rules-based algorithms, and that was AI. AI was rules. It's like, if, then, then this, okay, trigger. And we were starting to advance in not only our ability to have, you know, large Amounts of stored data for, you know, cheap, very cheap, and kind of financially very cheap. And then these new technologies starting to come out like we went from random forest to like XGBoost or neural networks and that quickly turned to convolutional neural networks and what you could do with that. You know, Dr. Anthony Chang, who's the head of AI Med, and he's a he's a pediatric uh, cardiologist at, at children's hospital in Orange County, uh, who you know decided to go back to school and get his you know, master's degree in data science. And that was very inspirational to me because it was what I was tasked to do around that time to start building kind of these clinical informatics, understanding of you know what's gonna happen with patients, you know, in the next 30 days or next year. And I began to kind of follow his path. I didn't go back to school, but a lot of reading um, started. I joined different organizations, including MI3 and AI Med, and was lucky enough to start to work hand in hand with data scientists to- build these algorithms and i think that you know some of it was right place at the right time some of it was my own curiosity and then knowing that i needed to educate myself to a degree that you know maybe i'm not going to go get my masters or my phd in data science but i would argue to anyone who's listening you don't have to do that because we're in a place where you know what what medicine needs is a clinician in the loop it needs a human in the loop and that human should be The clinician, because we have the context, we have, I mean, we understand the workflow, we understand the patient dynamics, we are patients ourselves often, and AI doesn't have that context, Um, and it won't for a very long time, no matter what anyone tries to convince you. I mean, we're not close to artificial general intelligence, You you can read a number of books. Yeah, you know, very dense book, but a good one is Superintelligence by Nick Bostrom. You know, that's a that's a book that kind of gives you an idea that we're probably twenty to hundred years away from general intelligence. We just don't understand enough about the human mind to say that we're going to build an AI or an AI will be built in the the you know kind of aura of of a of a human. You know, is it smarter generally than a rat? Probably, <laughs> so but that's not what we consider general intelligence. Right. I gave you a very long winded
0: answer. No, 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 that's fine. Because So when you left med school and, and, and residency, you started off in internal medicine. Did you start as a hospitalist right away?
1: I did. Yeah, I did. Uh, so I, I worked for a company called Caremore, which Anthem um, acquired. And the idea in that that group was if you treat the patient, the money will follow. And I liked that because it wasn't a let's burn and churn. How many R, you know RVUs are you going to get? I don't need to see 100 people in a day. It was a pay attention to what the, the patient needs, envelop them with care, Give provide them chronic disease management. So we had care centers that would bring in patients in for like a diabetes clinic. They they had MAs that were trained to cut, you know, the, the toenails. And so, you know, a lot of people would come in and get their toenails cut at the clinic, you know, it's our, specifically our diabetics. We would have a, you know, we had a heart failure clinic. We had a remote patient monitoring back then. And you know, really you saw these um. KPIs that we would look at like, you know, admissions of the COPD population. Mm-hmm. I remember it was because I would present it a lot of times. It was 40 to 42% lower than the industry average. Heart failure patients, 30% lower than the industry average in terms of, you know, hospitalizations. Which uh,
0: has real world money attached to that if you're keeping them in the hospital. Yeah. Yeah. And,
1: and w- more than the money, it's, you know, this is your mom, your dad, your grandma, your grandpa that, that's yeah. not going to the hospital, right? And this is yeah. you not having the Anxiety that my mom, my dad, my grandma, my grandpa. Sure, and the productivity
0: for you as a healer. Yeah, Yeah. it's it's
1: um it's it's bigger than just the financial aspect of it. But but of of course we have to focus on that because right you have to keep the lights on and and keep the that clinical model going. Sure. And my progression to alignment was it was actually our our previous founder. Uh, our co-founder of, of Caremore, the previous CMO of Caremore and the previous CEO of Caremore that got together and said, Hey, you know, job's not done. Let's build this with data. And, you know, they recruited me to come in and, uh, and, and kind of build that, that data part and say, "Look, we had data more timely, more actionable. Could we in fact do better than what we were doing, you know, at Caremore? And, and, um, you know, that thesis held true where we are, you know, our admissions per thousand in Medicare are running in the 150s to low 160s, where Milman states, you know, well well managed you know, Medicare population should be around the 200 uh, range admissions per thousand, and FIFA service is, depending on the market, is around 225 to 250. So if you think about that delta, we're almost 100. You know, it's like 40, percent 38, 40 percent less than Medicare FIFA service. That's real dollars, but those are real people. Right, um, right. You know, and and it's, a, it's the hospital, you're not, not decreasing hospitalizations
0: because you're actually caring for people it is what we all went to school for, right? Give me one sec, because I want to just talk about that. The, yeah. Maybe the counter argument that I could envision coming out is what is the difference in investments that Alignment Healthcare has made to get to that number versus maybe a more traditional health system because i I just presume that the investment of ai and data analytics and the people you need to bring in it's going to cost a little bit more to get there but is that still a significant cost savings
1: Yes, so it is definitely costly to get there in terms of building that infrastructure. But I think where we were lucky was we were even though we did spend quite a you know quite a bit is we were smaller and we had the ability to make a decision of hey, if we're going to do this, we need to do this now because it'll be near impossible. So you can sure. see that a lot of the bigger players are having issues with this because have such a tremendous <laughs> amount of data, right? They're still oh, band-aiding yeah. things together. They can't even get their, their health record
0: system set up. No, right?
1: no, no. And, and, and they and a lot of that's because they're they're still working um and relying on these kind of archaic data architectures. You know, we built In cloud, we built, you know, and and engineers for cloud engineering, you know, building cloud products, not cheap, but we built in cloud, we built, we, we migrated our legacy systems into cloud. We transfer, you know, you have an enterprise data warehouse that's um, inside of the cloud, as opposed to a SQL server, which if anyone's ever queried a SQL server, it's like a giant Excel document. And if you have too many lines that you're querying, it's going to crash just like Excel does. Sure. Um, you know, and you know, the, the nice thing about a, a cloud architecture is you don't have to worry about that. The factory scales itself up when it has a lot to do and it scales itself down when it doesn't. Nice. And, you know, doing that allowed us to start not only having a better line of sight to the data and actionability of the data, but it was then bringing on data scientists to be able to use things like, you know, data bricks and, and uh, these different virtual machines where they could build, uh, ai algorithms that would in turn you know be able to give us the outputs we needed and a lot of that you know conversation around the cost was of course roi like you know what's the return on investment of having you know an in artificial intelligence and the in the first use case was that of admissions and yeah you know, I, I i approached our ceo council and said i think if we can understand that a who the patients are that are likely to be admitted in the next 30 days. And we take, you know, the very top 10% of them and we provide them with 24 or 7 access to care, you know, and a nurse practitioner or a PA going into the home or virtually seeing them, um, you know, any time. Of day, um, then I think and to augment the primary care position, I think we can drive down admissions. There's a cost of those those FTEs, right? Sure, sure. But I bet you, and this is the, the projections. I worked with the actuarial team that if we can predict this many and decrease this this many admissions, we're gonna save X amount of dollars. And essentially at the first it was a gamble, I think, on the side of our, our CEO council to say yes. But when we did it, we were running in the like 180s, uh, 180 admissions per thousand, 185 admissions mm-hmm. per thousand. Plus mm-hmm. three and a half years, we've been around uh, average 155 in our in that that cohort. Um, mm-hmm. you know, that that delta of 30 you know, admissions per thousand, when the average admission costs us about fourteen thousand, fourteen thousand five hundred dollars. Yeah. Those are, that's big money yeah. um so you look at the cost curve bend and and we're you know we're a publicly traded company so this is all public information that i'm that i'm stating is you know you look at some of the the analysis that we put out there it's you know the it's a it's about a 30% cost delta and 20% cost savings meaning if you left left the patient population alone in that same cohort or similar cohort, what happens to them, you know, watching what happens to them financially versus when we're involved, that delta is about 30%. And then, but the cost savings, you know, from the, the just the, the access of zero is 21%. Um,
0: and, and again, from an economic perspective, the cost savings that you're describing, the 14K per person average, that's not including quality of life measures, the nope. productivity of that individual just society. All. Yeah, Yeah. that's just dollars for the for the company that is providing the care for them, the insurer, the insurance company. Yeah.
1: Yeah, And what people don't actually understand about like Medicare Advantage is so, okay. let's say I save a million dollars. I can only keep 15 percent of it. So eight hundred and fifty thousand dollars actually has to go back to benefits for the patient. You know, a lot they're like, oh, you know, and that's something that I'm seeing today in, in the conversation around, you know, Medicare Advantage and the, oh, they're making all this money and this, that, and the other. And it's like, yeah, but wait a minute. You don't understand how this works. Mm-hmm. Is we're making money, right? But we're only keeping 15% of what we're making. Yeah. We're actually giving back 85% to things like, you know, benefits like transportation. You know, we put $100 on a tangible, debit card that you can use for groceries. So we're, we're tackling social determinants of health. And that's why I love being where I am in a clinically led organization where you know we saw these things. You, you know, I've seen this forever. We've talked about this for years, right? Is, you know, somebody doesn't have food, why can't we help them get that food? So we have things like Meals on Wheels, right? We do that. Right. But right. maybe they need a little bit of extra cash. Health insurers aren't used to doing that. But we said a couple of years back, I sat down with our product team and a couple other physicians, um, uh, colleagues of mine that that share the same kind of worldview, of uh, hey, we you know part of the benefit should be let's give them hundred dollars back for groceries. Let's give them you know hundred dollars for over the counters like Tylenol, you know ibuprofen because. You and I've been in that situation where we tell a patient in the clinic, like, hey, you know what? Just go take some Dolcalax and some Senna and you'll be okay. You can buy it over the counter and then they don't fill it and they show up again. And then you say, well, why are you here? Like, well, you know, sorry, I didn't tell you I can't afford it. I couldn't afford it. Yeah. You know, the luxury I have is I I say, you know, that little black card you got in your pocket, you've got $20 on there. Yeah. What you use it for go, you know, go, go get that Santa or, you know, that, that Colace that you need or whatever it might be. Um, Perfect. and so it's, it's, I think it's, um, you know, having those data points as well, you know, helps us better treat the population.
0: Yeah. So, so in your role now, so you are the chief medical informatics officer for Lyman healthcare originally was a private entity. You guys went public a couple of years ago. Yeah. Two years ago. Two years ago. Okay. And, oh, and I want to say before we get, I get lost in this, congrats on your nomination from AI med for the champion clinician of the year. That's really impressive. Oh, thank you.
1: Yeah. I was, uh, I was, it was kind of a surprise. I was, I was, it's an honor,
0: but you've been singing Even be recognized. (laughs) Yeah. We've been singing on the squire sheet for a long time. I, I mean, you were way ahead of the curve for anybody at Keck that I knew. So, so, let's talk about for you know the general listener who are typically students and educators what is the key impact of ai for the care that you're providing currently in the patients that are within your purview it's
1: multifactorial but i, I because there's so many different models so we've implemented 170 machine learning models all explainable across our ecosystem some of them are looking at you know, general risk, like what's the risk of this person being admitted? What's the readmission risk? What is, um, you know, the likelihood that uh, their CHF is going to deregulate or they're going to, um, you know, what's the likelihood they're going to end up on, on dialysis? Uh, so I think there's, there's a number of those. You know, and then there's some non-clinical, which I don't think, you know, for the sake of this conversation are as important. And then what we, what we don't use, but I think is still worth bringing up are things like in the radiology space you know we're seeing a lot of use of artificial intelligence in radiology today around things like reading chest x-rays reading you know reading a uh, a ct scan you know an mri and helping the workflow of the the uh, radiologist there and um i think then the other big piece that we're seeing and that we're we're building right now is the the you know gpt3 gpt4 chat gpt's and kind of open uh, you know, like OpenAI and 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 others, these large language models, which we can have a discussion about as well on how good or bad are they. But you know, we're we're looking at it under the lens of it needs guardrails. We need to make sure that. The Chat GPT is reined in and isn't free to say whatever it wants. It's also important what data it has access to, because if you use something like an open AI today, you know, it has access to everything right and wrong and it can't reason through it. Right. Um, and, it, and it's a I had a meeting last week with the head of Microsoft's ethics division in AI and their lead of their open AI. And it was about 50 CTOs, CIOs from different companies. And we, we um, had kind of like a lunch and learn with them and got to ask questions. And what's was funny is you know, the this person from Microsoft, she goes, look, Chad GPT is a good confabulator. It's really good at it. And if you call it on it, it'll tell you, Oh, well, you know, I just didn't know the answer. So I just said that. And that in itself is pretty dangerous when you're talking about patient care. So you know, to, uh, I know I went on a bit of a tangent in terms of my answer. Um, so we're, you know, we're working on that, but in, in, in just to give you kind of a concrete, what did we, you know, what did we do? What was successful admission model, wildly successful. I think in terms of Claire, our readmission model, you know, it, it has a thousand little over a thousand attributes it's run on multiple times during the day. As soon as someone's discharged, it's run. It doesn't use the hospital EHR. So what happened to that person in the HR, it's using over a thousand other attributes of this person, including social determinants, who they are, and it's outperforming the LACE score by an average of 17%. For our our audience, what's the LACE score? So the LACE score is an industry standard tool that's a, a rules based algorithm that looks at things like, you know, length of stay, admitting diagnoses, a discharge disposition, um, level of care, you know, number of things to basically give a hospital system a likelihood of a readmission, and it's used at hospitals all over the country. Uh, we used it at you know at USC when I was a resident. They still use it at you know everywhere I go, and we're consistently outperforming it. Without even that hospital data, and so the you know I always talk to my colleagues about hey you got to get your hospital you know to to connect and to and build one with the hospital data because I bet you it's going to be way better than mine, but it's at least helping me better identify who case management needs to go see you know who maybe our you know I need to send a PA into the home or and it also triages the patient in within the system that we have built that if that high risk of readmission calls. It actually routes to the PA on call, or mm-hmm. the physician on call, or the you know case manager on call, depending on what the the reasoning is for. Okay. Um, and so that's a instead of sending them to like Teladoc or, you know, MD Live or or one of those the, those telehealth platforms, because as great as they are, that virtual urgent care I don't think is set up or equipped for you know a chronically frail you know patient who was just you know, admitted discharged from the hospital.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I think back to the old school days when I was doing hospital work and you get somebody that was just discharged from a different provider that ends up in your office. And if you don't have access to that H&P and the discharge summary and kind of the daily notes, and if the patient's not a, a great historian, you know, you're just kind of trying to figure things out through a lot of uh, misinformation. And frankly, you just start all over and try to, to create a better sense of the picture yourself. But it sounds like what you've set up with your parameters is, your folks are getting really accurate information and and a clear picture of the risk. So you can, you can do the things you need to do to avoid readmission. Yeah. Yeah. And,
1: and to be clear, we're like, we're, so it's a triage. And in a way it's a triaging tool, right? Just like we've used before. We're not denying anybody care. Everybody gets a, you know, on that list, you know, high to low gets a phone call. They all sure. get case management, but it's kind of, where do you start? Cause you certainly don't start alphabetically, you know, yeah. it just, hey, so it's. Um, I think what AI is doing for us and will do for us is help scale. It's going to change some industries. Uh, it's going to change some of how we practice medicine. But I would tell the students and the you know the, just the listeners of the the podcast is you don't be afraid of it. Understand it and understand when you're being fed AI. I was at a Reuters conference a couple of days ago. I was speaking in regards to actioning you know AI uh, actioning data and, in, in insight into insights. And, um, one of the things someone came up to me and said, you know, I'm, I'm terrified of AI. I think it's, you know, I don't know how we're going to use this clinically. I don't think we should. And, that, uh, and I said, well, um, let me ask you a question. You ever used to date?" I'm like, yeah, I use UpToDate all the time. <laughs> I'm like, what about Hippocrates? He's like, oh, yeah, I totally use Hippocrates. I'm like, how do you use it? He just grabs his iPhone out of his pocket. And I was like, huh? Okay. And so I kind of looked at him and, and at that split second, he um, was putting his phone away and then he got a ding and he immediately brought it up to his face. And I said, so what I've just observed is you actually have a symbiotic relationship with AI. You're just not understanding that yet. And he yeah. was kind of like a, oh, oh. And so we started to talk more and more. I started to talk to him about you know, think about how these algorithms are working and the AI that you are interacting with. You're comfortable with. So, mm-hmm. what's the real conversation we need to have is trust, and how do you build the trust that you need for the AI? And it's really understanding where the AI is coming from, or that you are using AI in that moment. So, in a it, when you're in a clinical workflow and you're you know you're going through let's say, you know, what do I need to do next for this person? This quality measure pops up and it says, hey, you should do this. You know, was it a rule or was it AI that's saying, hey, I'm identifying something? And then the ability to kind of hover over it and say, okay, this is the training set it was trained on. This is the reason why it's telling me that explainability uh, plus understanding, I think is going to build the trust, Mm -hmm. uh, but also is something that we should be questioning. Because AI can be built with tremendous bias. Um and understanding the data set is incredibly important because you can't in the in the at least in the US models right now, majority of these risk-based models are the training data is from the West Coast or the East Coast. Yeah. It doesn't. It's not the same thing in you know rural Idaho or Iowa, you know, uh, or the middle of Texas. It's different. Some of the features and the you know during your feature importance stage of you know building an AI, sure you might have you might have something that that's the same but it's not reproducible and you can't you can't just take a model and pop it somewhere else what you need to do is train on the data from that area so like if i have a model that's really working really well in california i can take those same parameters look at them and feature importance in a place like let's say iowa but i may find that there are other features that are more important and that you know that that the ai will say you know what those things that were as were important in california they don't really apply here there are some other things that they're capturing and then but the data that you need you know to be successful in that you need a couple of years of data from you know the population in iowa to to say that yes that's what i'm going to to do for this you know this population and and create an ai so i think that's an important key piece of understanding too is kind of where did this come from you know what is it you know where did you get the data from and what
0: are the biases inside of it if you pay attention to the news i'm sure i know you're very busy but i'm sure you you're very keenly aware of the challenges in our country related to dei and and the conversations and the laws that are being put out there in some states to regulate or shut down any kind of DEI conversations. And when I went to the MI meeting uh, uh, with Dr. Chang, you know, a few years ago with you, one of the key messages you talked about the the bias, right? One of the key messages is how important it is to have a diverse group of people around the table. You know, diverse group of people that are trained to do machine learning, deep learning, et cetera. So you just talk a little bit about that concept and has that changed since I was at that training or are we seeing more diversity in that or is it still the same? Yeah,
1: I think there's a so I mean I'm I I, my team is incredibly diverse. I've got, you know, I have uh, somebody from Cambodia, somebody from Indonesia, somebody from India, somebody from Iran, somebody from two people from Europe and you know, a couple of, of Americans. so we're and, and one South American. so we're kind of you know we're, we're not everywhere. <laughs> um, yeah. but you know, that doesn't mean that we don't there's not bias, right? It, 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 the bias largely can live in the data itself. Um, sure. And so we we've taken upon it our um as an organization, but also one of the things that you know, you've heard, like you said, you've heard me speak about bias a lot it, me I, I don't I don't want to build a model that has bias in it, so we have to look at a number of things. We look at things like you know causality um, versus correlation. We look at uh, identifying you know running other algorithms to identify you know things that we know may create some social biases we already remove, but there are proxies for those biases, and you you can identify those proxies by running you know different types of algorithms to say. Oh uh, wait a minute! You know that proxy that uh, th- this is a, you know, X is a proxy for the patient being, let's say, you know, a Hispanic origin, and that we need to remove that proxy, or we need to make it known, you know, if clinically relevant that this exists, you know, this bias exists, but we are seeing it, you know, in this demographic more. So you know, it's a it's a fine line to walk, but it's important to. Um, it's important to discuss because if you think about, uh, you know, get out of medicine for a second. There's still, you know, many police departments that are using software of, you know, did this person create, a, you know, actually do the crime or not do the crime, right? And it's it's based on training data from arrest records, and we all know that in certain areas of the country, if not all, right, there are some biases and racial biases that the more some more extreme than others. That sure. They were used for training data. So you've inherently created this environment where the AI is going to express that. Yeah. I think some people are going back to fix it. And I think some people don't realize it's even there.
0: Yeah. And and you you talk about the algorithms that you create. How does your team and how do you as a clinician take a look at the output of that algorithm after it's been completed to assess validity, to assess for bias that still might be present?
1: Yeah, explainable AI is very important. So the ability to have the model explain, you know, why it's it's saying something, so that's one. Uh, two is, you know, we kind of on the back end create a report card. I, I just saw a lecture from a gentleman in the US Navy um, who there, the, the VA and, and the Navy are doing the same thing with creating this report card of kind of, you know, what was the intention of this model? What was the data that was used? You know how accurate is it? So we look at precision and recall, and that's positive predictive value and sensitivity, and that's a better measure of how you know well you're accurately predicting something versus a you know an area under the curve. So you hear a lot of AI companies out there that say, "Oh, our AUC area under the curve is you know eighty three percent, ninety percent, and you know we're we're the best thing since you know sliced bread." And my response is, well, what's precision and recall? And they give it to you and it's low. And they're like, okay, so your model's not great. You just have a really kind of steep curve that, you know, or a fat curve that allows for a lot of area under it. That means nothing. You know, it, it's yeah. not a good, it, it's a good way to be tricked. So something I would take away from, from this discussion is, you know, start asking the hard questions because the vendors are always going to go to the the AUC because it's always a high number and it, you know, it helps them sell. But in fact, that's not what you should be looking at. What you should be looking at is, you know, how is the precision and recall? Are you actually capturing this? The output that you want or else you know, it's, it's not going to be
0: successful. Yeah. Consistency, validity. Yeah, I get it talked earlier about ChatGPT, which is kind of the the popular thing these days. I'm sure there'll be lots of other models coming out. But ultimately, I took a dance into ChatGPT this morning just to get a sense as an educator of how I might use it to enhance my job, to make my efficiency improve to support our students and also to understand how our students might use it from a perspective of learning maybe remediation or of course the, every academic out there talks about cheating and I and I I spit out for, and I said this to you earlier which uh you know we're happy to make available on our website but I spit out like three different questions or or directives to the chat GPT 4.0 which was based on developing learning instructional objectives around hypertension and then It recommended that I consider doing assessments that are tied to each objective, which is good educational philosophy. So I asked it to put out some assessments for us, and it gave us some multiple choice questions, a uh, short answer form, and a case. And then uh, I also asked it to explain for a learner uh, the, the... physiology of something, I can't remember which topic it was, but ultimately, where do you see PA education being impacted by AI in the classroom? And what are the important features as a clinician that's using this regularly? And as an employer, as you hire PAs down the road, what are the things you're going to, you think employers are going to want to see that PA schools are preparing students for? So I think right now,
1: I would not use OpenAI for any kind of medical question, because although it can quote unquote pass the boards, it lacks tremendous context. So if you slapped in a couple of vignettes I with a question at the end, I guarantee you it's probably going to get it wrong. If you throw in um, something like, you know, what's the most common cause of atrial fibrillation? it'll probably get that right sure. because it's simple, but the more complex it's, it's not great. So let's, let's start with the, the educator. So what, what open AI and chat GBTs, you know, allow you to do is build things like a curriculum, put that together, but I still think you need to kind of take a take a look at it yourself and edit it. You're right. You got to fine tune it. It's not going to be completely right, but it's going to definitely help you get the ball rolling. So it'll, you know, you think of it as just another tool in your arsenal that you still need to look over. That's going to help you kind of scale your time and and put
0: some of these things together. Right. Yeah. To to that point, yesterday I asked it to create 15 instructional objectives on heart failure, including pathophysiology, physiology, you know, all the classic things. And with a more descriptive request, it gave me 15, but many of them were duplicative. Yeah. They were kind of covering the same thing. So I see your point. I I, I validate that. Yeah. And today I didn't I didn't give it a number. I said, give me instructional objectives and hypertension. And they were pretty shallow. Yeah, They're, it was a good yeah. starting point, yeah. but they were pretty shallow. Yeah. And so I think the, the key
1: message out of that is right, don't depend entirely on. The ch- what the answer of the chat GPT is. You still have to think critically. What I worry is that we are gonna, you know, there will be those who become dependent on whatever Chat GPT says, because Chat is so <laughs> it's such a good confabulator. And uh-huh. but it it's so convincing that, oh, this is it. It's right. Oh my God. It wrote this in a way that obviously it's correct. But it's, you know, oftentimes it's not. So you still have to have that critical thinking. Verify and validate. Uh, to verify, right? Verify, validate. And I think to some degree for like the students that are going through it, that verification validation process is actually going to help them learn a little bit more, right? Because they're going to spend that that extra time kind of looking to validate. Those that don't. I think can be harmed because looking at kind of what you sent, right? The multiple choice questions, interesting, um, right? And what it, what it came back with like some of the multiple choice or, or, you know, what are some non-modifiable risk factors for hypertension, right? And gave a couple of, of, of things. Um, What's interesting though, is that it's not writing the questions in the way that the boards think about it right so uh, i i wrote for the boards for a while i don't currently do that for the the nc um nccpa nccpa yeah and you know i know how we think because i was asked to think that way and, and it's changed the way that i think about you know taking tests and looking at and answers and there there's a very particular way of you know there's four you know potential answers um and they're usually all four of them are pretty close to being correct, but there's one really correct answer. Where a lot of these answers that come out they, from ChatGPT are, there's three or you know two obvious that's definitely not right, right? Or uh, but the two that maybe or one that's definitely right, and that's not going to be the way that the same way that we you know you take your boards or I take my boards. So it is important to to think about that, but at the same time, I think. Where I think is going to get really exciting is if you are able to, and I think we're we're going to be there very soon, is that you can tell the chat GPT to close the environment to specific data sources and then create those questions, you know, to create test questions for yourself, right? Sure. To start saying, you know, and, and so you won't need a board review book. You're going to say, hey, chat GPT, utilize Dynamed up to date and the uh, CMDT and uh, write me 10 questions about hypertension and you're going to get, you know, 10 multiple choice questions on hypertension and then test yourself. I, I think we're going to be there soon, but today it's, it's the whole, you know, gamut of what's out there on the internet and it can't reason through it.
0: Yeah. So it can't, it can't get, verify good versus yeah exactly.
1: sources. Yeah. 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 And so in that case, it's a little bit I don't use the word dangerous, but it's it's not the appropriate place for you to, you know, to to learn. I think it can direct you, but I wouldn't uh, solely, you know, (laughs) bet my board certification on it.
0: Yeah. So so the context of uh, AI in images. Mm-hmm. That that argument when I was at that training was very clear, right? The they were yeah. using the ophthalmology study for uh, retinal changes. They were using mm-hmm. the which I think was Google, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, it was Google. They, Yep, yep. They were using the pulmonary embolism studies okay. with CT, which I think might have been in Orange County at Chalk yep. or somewhere else, yeah, um, or UC Irvine, I think. Yeah. So basically, AI when you when you're doing machine learning or deep learning around imagery, highly accurate for the most part. And, and, and what it's doing is it's it's allowing a radiologist to get uh, a note saying urgent, take a look at this CT first because we see a high probability of PE, and so they can kind of expedite the urgent care the and the care that is needed. But in terms of all the other aspects of it, right now, uh, it's it's going to be more useful. It sounds like in predictive modeling, in assessing hospital stays and efficiencies, and ways to improve chronic care management maybe even improve urgent care management down the road in the hospital base. And and so PAs basically just need, from your perspective, it sounds like, read up on it, keep up on it, attend conferences so you're you're still aware of it and be ready to use it in your practice setting and down the road because it's coming, but it's not going to take away their jobs. No,
1: yeah, it's going to be that extra um, kind of. Cl- I always call it the clinician on your shoulder. Uh-huh. You know, it's just another data point that you have in your arsenal and taking care of you know patients. And and what AI should be doing, a good AI is going to help scale you as a clinician. It should be built to help you do your job better, help you do your job faster. Right? so like in the in the case of the you were just articulating in in regards to radiology it's bringing it up to the queue right because if we think about how a radiologist reads they're reading you know, whatever was done in the order it was done. But if something's bad in number 100, I got to go through 99 things before I get to the bad thing. It just right. brings it up to the top of the queue for them and points an arrow you know, to, hey, you got to look at this. There's this there. And there, there's, I mean, I think there's now over 800 FDA approved imaging AIs. Uh, so I'm um, doing cardiology, so, things are around cardiac MRI, echo, um, even on reading an EKG. So, or, right, we, we've all read an EKG. That old AI was like, you know, STEMI. And you look at the EKG, you go, no, you stupid, like, <laughs> I mean, yeah, you're yeah. not right. It Never trusted tremendously it. Tremendously better, you know, at it. And I think it'll be soon that we will have those integrated into our EKG machines. We don't. There are certain, you know, companies that do, uh, that are doing it and starting to integrate where they're catching, you know, atrial fibrillations, a flutters faster than, than anything else. And and able to tell you that that's what it is. They're starting to put them in stethoscopes where the stethoscope will tell you the murmur. (laughs) Um, So all great, great, you know, in terms of tools, we just have to remember that what happens when it doesn't work, right? We still have to have have to know what we're doing when we, uh, you know, we're taking care of a patient. We can't, we can't lose that and that's a big, big part of it. You still got to put your hands on patients.
0: Yeah. And it sounds like from a student perspective, um, there could be some benefit to helping you build, especially in the next year or two, building test questions to kind of prep for exams or prep for the board exams. But ultimately, you know, they have to remember the board exams are highly proctored. Right. So they're going to have to be able to make the answers on their own without right. utilizing that. And it also sounds like you might be better off going through a peer reviewed textbook or journal for evidence based medicine or practice guidelines at this point than relying on ChatGPT to give you the answers.
1: Yeah. And just again, again, to be clear, it's open AI is open to everything, right? But if you had an environment that was a ChatGPT that had access to just the closed environment of like peer reviewed journals and peer reviewed journals and that. That's that's being built, and you know that will be. I think soon, what'll happen is you'll have like you know up to date. We'll probably end up integrating something like this. Dynamit'll end up integrating, and then you ask a question of you know what's the most common cause of X. You're not gonna have to scroll through the screen to find it. You're, it's just going to tell you you know because it's using its its data as the only source it shouldn't be open to everything it should just be open to kind of that that knowledge base that you're you're looking for you know I will
0: say the one thing I was impressed by is that it did it did give me a disclaimer it said based on information when I last was trained which is September of 21. And it did encourage me to speak to a healthcare provider, assuming I was a patient looking at information. But so there I
1: mean, are I don't know if you're aware of this, but there so two years ago, there was a chat GPT that put in theoretical patients and it told a suicidal patient to, to patient to kill itself.
0: I was aware, yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. So were you aware that it did it again last week? No. Yeah. So uh, even though you sometimes get that disclaimer it happened again last week. So Microsoft was on this call with Microsoft. She was saying, you know, we actually caught a case where it did it. Luckily, it was a fake patient. But during the process, it, it had told the during the cycle of the conversation, it had you know essentially implied to the that fake patient. Yeah, you should go ahead and do it. So it, wow. it's not ready for clinical care. It's not going to take away, you know, your ability to talk to somebody. It's just not there yet. It doesn't understand context. I had an exercise with my data science team as everyone was very excited about you know, OpenAI. And I said, okay, let's ask it about breast cancer uh, and breast cancer screening. Let's go, through, um, let, let's go through and start asking the questions. So I, I open up the chat GPT and say, I'm a 44-year-old female, should I get a, a mammogram? And I get uh, an answer. And then I go, I go, okay, well, can you give me the guidelines? And then it gives me the guidelines. And the guidelines are slightly different from what it told me I should do.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: And then I said, well, wait, you told me to do this, but now the guidelines say, contradict that. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't realize that. And it's like, wait a minute. You know, you're... You're speaking to me as though you're "quote unquote" human, but in the oh, I didn't realize that. I'm sorry, and you're apologetic and showing some level of empathy, but you shouldn't be getting this wrong in the first
0: place. Right, and and we're trained to actually ask the questions after that first question exactly, to, right? To to right. stratify risk.
1: Right, and the, and and you have to take a step back and think now: who would the user be if I was? That patient asking, saying, I'm a 44, would I actually have the health literacy or digital literacy to continue to ask questions? And the overwhelming majority of the population, the answer is no. Right. So I think that's a a key piece that we have to think about as we're building these tools, as we're utilizing, we're going to, you know, organizations that we all are in are going to start adopting these tools. We have to, to think about that. And the other thing we have to think about is security, is if you're putting your you know, company or your employer, hospital, clinic, whatever it is, data into OpenAI. You've now just made it public, and it's at reach. It could be, you know, breached. It could be accessed by somebody else. Samsung, some an employee at Samsung just did this like two weeks ago, where they dumped a bunch of sensitive information about Samsung onto OpenAI to ask it a question, and now it's all out. So I think it's exciting. There's a lot of chatter, um, yeah, but. I think uh, you should proceed with caution.
0: Pump the brakes.
1: Yeah. Pump the brakes a little bit. Think critically. Make sure you're asking the right questions. How you word a question is very important. And that could be difficult for anybody, especially if English is your second language. You know, if your education levels, it's so uh, don't always, don't always believe what you get. Think about, you know, think about it, go into a text.
0: I have to, to thank you. I mean, first of all, you, all the work that you do for the PA profession has been really admirable and uh, being a preceptor, being an educator, being on the NCCPA board, writing folks, you know, the writing work groups, but then to also, also be inclusive of us as a profession in the care that you provide your patients and also in thinking about the use case for AI and, and inclusive of PAs and NPs down the road. It's really wonderful and and we're very grateful for your time today.
1: Well, thank you for having me. It's an honor to be here. And, you know, I have strong love for PAs. My wife's a PA. number of family members are PAs. I got a lot of friends who are PAs. Yeah, I, I love the model. I, I believe in the model. I think it's, um, you know, we, we work better together.
0: Before we sign off, I just wanted to share a couple of things. One is, as I alluded to earlier last week, we have passed 20,000 downloads for this podcast. And Stephanie and I are incredibly grateful to all of you, our listeners, for being part of that and joining us on this journey to hear about the PA profession, about PA programs, and learn about healthcare from the lens of our profession. I was reflecting in our conversation with Dr. Bakshende because uh, he has been a strong ally for the profession. He's gotten involved beyond just precepting or teaching or supervising or collaborating with PAs. He actually has helped the NCCPA as a thought leader with their test writing work group, as you heard, it made me realize that sometimes it's helpful for us to stop and reflect and look at the people around us who lift us up, who have taken risks uh, for us uh, early on in my career. My physician colleagues took risks on having a PA in the practice and at the hospital. And without those uh, allies early on, we wouldn't be where we're at. And I recognize that many, many, many of us have earned that through hard work, dedication, compassion, and team-based practice, but still it helps. And so I just thought it would be important to thank him for that and thank uh, the people around us who continue to lift us up rather than tear us down. I also want to say hello to my AAPA colleagues and all of my PA colleagues who are in attendance at the American Academy of PA's 2023 meeting in Nashville. They're staying at the Music City Center and learning all about the profession, about evidence-based medicine, about policy, and, and so many other valuable insights that they're going to gain I hope you all have a wonderful week there. Sorry I can't be there with you, but we look forward to hearing all about it. We want to thank Dr. Arda Bakshande for his time and insights into artificial intelligence and its impact in medicine and in PA education. There's much to see coming down the pike related to this topic. Tune in next week as we speak with Dr. Christopher Hannafin. The department chair and assistant professor at the Seton Hall University Department of Physician Assistant. Dr. Hennepin talks about his path to becoming a PA in cardiothoracic surgery, as well as becoming a PA educator, director, and national leader. Until next time, we wish you success with whatever path you're walking in life, and thank you for joining us. The purpose of this podcast is to provide news and information on the PA profession and is for informational purposes only. The views and perspectives expressed on this podcast are those of the speakers and guests and do not necessarily reflect the positions or policies of the University of Arizona.